Live from Oranjestad en Utrecht. This is the Van Wierdum Sjors Nedo. Hello. Hey Sjors. Welcome to this remote session. We're doing it remote. I'm on my way to Miami. My long trip my long trip to Miami. I'm in Aruba at the moment. And you're still in Utrecht. Yep. Yeah, I'm enjoying uh well, cloudy skies, rain and cold. And you're going for a swim have, in the tropics. Have fun with that. Good. Exactly. Have have fun staying cold. <laughs> have fun staying cold and wet, yours. So yeah, the audio quality is uh, not as great as usual, but hopefully it's good enough. Today we are going to discuss minor censorship and OVAC compliance, more specifically. Yes. Sure. Uh, oh, I have. I don't have my notes at me. There was a. Can you explain the context here? There was a new mining pool. There, there is a. Uh, I think they've been around for a while, right? I forgot their name, but they basically have been bragging on press releases and social media that. They are a compliant pool. They comply with all U.S. regulations, which is quite amazing because you have no idea how many regulations the U.S. has. Yeah. Uh, but in particular, they they want to be compliant with uh, sanction lists. It's a Marathon Digital Holdings. And I think, is that also the name of the mining pool? Um, maybe, maybe not. Marapool is the name of the mining Mara pool. Marapool, that sounds familiar. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the one. Right. Uh, I think there are two mining pools that are doing this now, actually. Um, okay. I think there might be another one. But anyways, yeah, Marapool is one of them. And uh, they mined their first... We're recording this on Thursday, May 6th. And they recorded their first clean block today. Cl- yeah, well, I mean, the only thing that techni- technically happened is there was an opportunity message in the Coinbase saying OFAC compliant. Right. Okay, so let's talk about this. What does this mean? What uh, wh- what can miners do to be compliant? Uh, should we consider it center- censorship? How should we look at this? So let's first start with the facts. Um, yeah, miners, of course, include transactions in blocks. Uh, how can they actually... Let's just call it censorship, George. What do you think? I mean, sure. Uh, in this case... I th- you know let's let's consider what what they could censor right not what they actually did censor. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, a block consists of transactions and transactions spend an existing UTXO and they usually create a new UTXO. And so you can censor either you can say well we don't want these UTXOs to be spent, so you censor based on the input of a transaction, or you can censor based on where the funds are going. You know the output of a transaction, mm-hmm. so you can say, well, if it goes to this address, then we don't mine it. Those are the two possibilities. Yeah, so a transaction is sent over a network, and then usually a miner will pick. You know, it's mining pools generally that are actually creating the blocks, and usually they will just create the, you know, the set of transactions. They'll they'll pick the transactions that pay the most fees. Assuming right, that will be the default way to do it. Assuming yeah. there are more transactions in their mempool than fit in a single block, they're gonna, you know, they can't fit them all in, so they'll select the transactions that pay them the most fees. It's a little bit more complicated than that, and we've discussed that in a previous episode, where the transaction selection is actually based on how they can make the most aggregate fees. And but that that's not the point here. We're not gonna get into that. 
usually the default way is a miner just picks the, the transactions that pays them the most fees. However, in this case, they can exclude certain transactions for particular reasons. In this case, because they want to be compliant with what is called the OFAC list. Yours. Yeah, and I what? think you're pronouncing it in a, in a very specific way that suggests a slightly different spelling. But um, it, it stands for, you know, the Office of Foreign Asset Control or something like that. And you know, so, so this is interesting because in the promotional material of that particular pool, they were bragging about complying with all U.S. regulations, including all anti-money laundering regulations and OFAC. And for the uh, legal nerds, which I'm not, but I find this stuff somewhat interesting... The OFAC is a very, very narrow uh, thing. It, it's about basically blacklisting foreign dictators and, and whoever the U.S. doesn't like. Uh, and most of the people the U.S. doesn't like, you know, nobody likes. But in this case, uh, a couple of years ago, the OFAC published, I think, a list of Bitcoin addresses saying, well, these addresses you know, are associated with bad people. And so my guess is, but we don't know because all we've got is this opportune message, my guess is that they they made sure that this particular block did not contain a transaction to or from that address. Yeah, I think there were like two addresses, right? You call yeah. you say a so list, but it was really just two, if I'm recalling correctly. Yeah, last time we checked, it was two. Anyway, the point is, the odds said those addresses were used at all are practically zero, so they could have just published this opportune message. You know, randomly in some block without even checking anything. Um, and as far as we know, uh, for example, on forkmonitor.info, uh, you can click on a block. If you know the hash, you can you can still look at an old block too. And it it tries to track uh, what transactions should have been in a block based on the fees, the sequence of fees, and then which transactions were actually in a block. And the difference between that might be censored or might just be random, like some timing problem or whatever. And as far as I know, there was nothing censored, and there was definitely nothing censored that would be on the OFAC list. Right. Yeah, so right... So they didn't actually censor anything, as far as we know. Right. So right now, as far as we know, there... Or last time I checked, anyways, there were, like, two addresses on this OFAC list. So these two addresses you can send any coins to or from. But, of course, this could be expanded over time. And over time, there are more and more addresses on this list. And that would mean that at some point they might actually censor transactions that include relevant addresses that are on this list. Yeah, now or it could, you know, yeah, it could be much worse, right? Uh, for example, I think there was a, um, a settlement between BitGo and some U.S. department, and I think that was about OFAC very specifically. They were, like, accused of allowing people in Cuba to do make transactions, and that entire country is on the OFAC list. And they, you know, right. And basically, they had to, the way they had to comply with OFAC was a lot more than just blocking a certain address because OFAC does not say these Bitcoin addresses belong to Cuba. It's up to you to decide which Bitcoin addresses belong to Cuba, if you're a service provider like Bitgo. So it's you know you can lazily say we're OFAC compliant, but OFAC might not agree with that at all, especially if you're making a claim like that. So I don't know why they're they're kicking this hornet nest. Right. Well, let's because now OFAC might come back and say, "Hey, we actually did an investigation of all these addresses, and we find that actually uh, there are two that went to Cuba, and now you guys go to jail for lying." I don't think you can go to jail for lying about that, but you know. 
Let's let's get into what does the, what does this actually achieve? What does it actually mean if a miner like this uh, Marapool is keeping transactions uh, out of their blocks? How would this affect? Let's say there is a transaction that that's sent to one of these addresses, for example. Yeah, then they would miss out on uh, I don't know a hundred satoshis worth of fees, and the uh, transaction would get into the next block. Yeah, so basically in that case, there would be a little bit of delay for the transaction. And maybe it could have some weird effects on the transaction fee. I was, you know, thinking maybe it would have gotten in that block and just right after that block, there's sort of a, a flood of new transactions on the network for whatever reason. And then it's excluded in the next block because mm -hmm. of the fee is not high enough. So maybe if you want to be safe and sorry and you're sending a transaction to an address like this, it would be better to pay a little bit more fees. But in general, if we're painting with broad strokes, we can say the only thing it really achieves is a little bit of delay, right? Probably not even that. Because the odds of, of that block being mined by that specific pool are also very small. Because yeah. there are so many other pools. Yeah. So. Well, uh, th there's a little bit of a difference. So there's a little bit of delay, and therefore I would argue it's a little bit of an infringement on fungibility. Fungibility is this idea that one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. It doesn't matter which Bitcoin you have in the same way that it doesn't matter, you know, $1 bill is a $1 bill. You can just change $1 bill for another one. It'll pay you the same thing at every store. And ideally, we'd have that for Bitcoin. But if there are some transactions, some, you know, Bitcoins that are going to be delayed more than others, even though that is a very mild inconvenience, it's already harming fungibility at least a little bit. I don't know about that because, like, I can't measure it. I just can see how this goes down a slippery slope to something that you will start noticing um, very, very badly. Yeah, the good, Eventually. the good thing to finish off that thought is that the, the counter-argument there is that pools that are doing this, like this Mara pool, um, they are also making less in fees. Miners that right. will just include every fee into their block, they're making the optimum amount of fees. If you're not doing that, you're necessarily going to earn less fees. So maybe on the long run, on the, in the long term, you'd be outcompeted by... Um, miners that will just include all transactions yeah, in their blocks. But not, but not if you only limit it to these two addresses on the OFAC list. Then it won't have any difference for the next million years. Then the difference will be very small. Yeah, But the problem is, let's say you really want to be OFAC compliant. Now, the best way to be OFAC compliant as a mining pool is to mine empty blocks. And even then, you might not be OFAC compliant. So, Because let's say if you mine empty blocks... Then you could say, well, you know, if a transaction comes from a known exchange and we know they've KYC'd everybody, you know, both, both the from and to address are KYC'd, then you allow those transactions in, something crazy like that. Uh, but an, even then, an empty block doesn't have any transactions in, in its source. No, I'm saying like empty. empty block is an extreme example, but the, this, you'd start with an empty block and then you add everything that's whitelisted. Right. But even an empty block could might not be OFAC compliant. Why? Because... You're a mining pool, so you don't know who the miners are in your pool. So if, if the miner in your pool is some guy in Iran, and then he's using electricity from a local Iranian power plant, you're still violating OFAC, at least, you know, 
OFAC. You, you probably should not claim that you're not violating OFAC. Right. Let's put it that way. Right. You should have. You should first need to KYC all of your hashers as well. Yeah, and it's possible maybe they're already doing that. So that's a far, far greater censorship problem than those two addresses that they're not mining. The fact that they're KYCing their miners, because even that's not necessarily normal with uh, with pools. Yeah. Right. Now let's get into um, a much big or. Yeah, we're, it, but it, it sucks well, to it sucks to record a podcast at distance, George, because now I'm not sure if you were done talking or not. Well, I was trying to go to like what this could look like, you know, if it gets out of hand a little bit more. Right. Well, that, uh, that's where I wanted to, to go as well. And let me first mention yeah. this. So w- right now we were talking about just a single pool, and that's basically, you know, that's something Bitcoin can handle. I think, and I think we both agree for the reasons we. Uh, just explained now it becomes a real problem if miners and mining pools that do this have a majority and they actually start to collude to reject not just transactions that include not just transactions but also blocks that include certain transactions right exactly so the building on top of a block that is not compliant yeah, if a majority of miners start doing that, then your transaction isn't just going to be delayed. It's just going to be unminable. It's just going to be delayed forever. Because, no, first of all, no miner is going to... Well, a majority of miners isn't going to put it in a block. And then even if one of the minority of miners puts it in a block, that minority knows that block is going to be orphaned by the majority. So yep. most so more now likely than not, s- the minority will not even put it in the block in the first place just to be, make sure they're not going to be orphaned. Precisely. So you get self-censorship moreover, in addition to being compliant. Moreover, I think this uh, would start to become a very real effect way before there's a majority actually doing this because you have this selfish mining dynamic where it probably starts being a real problem at like... I don't know, what is it, 30%, 33%, where minority of miners are probably just going to comply with the censorship because otherwise they'll have their blocks yeah. orphaned. So I'm going to make a little prediction here uh, about a new company that's going to come into existence sooner rather than later, and that is an insurance company. And what this insurance company does is if you are a miner, you can buy insurance with them that they will pay for any block you need to orphan. So if you, you know, because it's very expensive for you to orphan a non-compliant block, but if the insurance company just pays for, you know, every time you you don't end up in the longest chain, well, then that removes the risks for you. And that might be economical if on the other side of this equation is the U.S. government giving you a billion dollar fine or putting you in jail. You know, you might be willing to sacrifice a 0.1% of your profits. And the insurance would ultimately become extremely cheap. Because as soon as you get this self-censorship dynamic, there really just is hardly any blocks that need to be orphaned, so the insurance never has to pay out. So this whole insurance scheme could be paid by some venture capitalist who wants this future, basically insures people, insures miners at a loss until the dynamics are there. I can make this even more gloomy, if you like. Go for it, Shors. <laughs> yeah, so, so we already, I briefly mentioned the idea of whitelisting transactions. Right, so uh, a compliant pool, or even a pool that doesn't want to be compliant but just doesn't want to risk the orphaning, that's in the later stage. But in the first stage, if you just want to be the compliant pool, um, you probably want to 
have some API for all the exchanges, and every exchange publishes a feed of every transaction they're broadcasting with some sort of score next to it. You know, the the maximum score would be like, yeah, we thoroughly KYC this person, like we, we anally probe them, check them for COVID, like we really know this, this transaction is legit. And you only mine what's in that RSS feed depending on your risk tolerance. Um, that's that's a problem. And then the, the other side is how many pools would be compliant. In my worst case scenario there would be, uh, for example, the U.S. might tell every miner, physical miner in the country, like, hey, you know, you're welcome to mine, but there's a couple of conditions. One, you have to use renewable energy. Uh, okay, that's fine. And the other is uh, you have to use one of the OFAC-compliant pools, you know, and you can self-regulate this thing, and then you get this weird self-regulation stuff where people make up rules that are really bad. Um, so that's... And then you think, okay, that's just the U.S. pools. That's still a minority, although the U.S. pools are getting bigger. And then the European pools join because Europe likes this idea. And then, you know, as part of some goodwill gesture from China... They also joined this thing, and now we have, you know, basically an international cartel of of compliant miners that are using compliant pools. And then the question is, like, is the Bitcoin community going to roll over and accept this? Because the number might still go up, and a lot of, you know, big Bitcoiners, just, just, you know, for them, the number will go up, and is this really their fight? I don't know. Well, even if it's not their fight, I don't know what the defense would be. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting point you bring up. I think there are se- several potential responses and there are a number of potential ideas that you could use in this case. Um, I think Adam Back has been speaking about uh, this concept called committed transactions. I think that that's what the term is. Yep. Um, I think there may be other ideas out there. Uh, the idea basically being, in general, you make it physically impossible to do this type of censorship because you don't know what's going to be in a block, um, right? Sorry, what's that? The idea is to make it impossible because you can't see what is in a block. Like, the transactions are blinded in a way. Yeah, so it's only scale. revealed later. But it's it's uh, it's an interesting idea, but that raises new questions like how would Lightning handle with something like this? If a penalty transaction is broadcast, how would you manage yeah, that? Yeah, and you can something? get into this. The, the biggest problem with this type of regulation in general, like we just talked about OFAC, but any kind of uh, AML stuff, stuff, is the reverse burden of evidence. So if your transactions are cloaked, well, then you need to prove that they don't contain any sanctions transactions and otherwise you're not allowed to mine them. So it's hard to overcome that. Um, what I'm a little bit more optimistic about is simple things like input aggregation and also just lightning because there you can say, well, we have to aggregate all these transactions and so we can't really see what is what because otherwise the fees are too high. And the same with lightning, right? You cannot publish the details of every lightning transaction because that simply doesn't fit on the blockchain. So we could get lucky that sort of the forces of nature in, in the sense of uh, transaction capacity pushes the information, like makes it impossible to have the information you need for complete censorship. And maybe we get lucky that way. Sure, yeah, better privacy itself is a potential solution. Um, But I mean, the combination of privacy and the incentive for privacy being financial um, rather than direct, 
Because if you say, I want my privacy because, you know, I'm a citizen and I have rights, well, then you're suspicious, obviously. I mean, I'm being sarcastic here, but... Um, but if you're saying, well, I don't want privacy, but lightning is just cheaper, well, then it's fine because, you know, you should be frugal. Yeah, there's also the Eric Foskell argument who says uh, if your transactions are being censored, that just means you need to start paying more fees. Uh, there are ultimately mm -hmm. very radical proposals, you know, which, which is sort of a, if nothing else works, we can always change the proof of work with the hard fork, something like that. And then what? But, uh, well, then at least, um, you know. We get all the problems that altcoins have with random proof of work. Yeah. At least it will probably work for a little while again and figure out a solution in the meantime. Uh, who knows? I, Maybe I, it's not solvable. Like, I, I'm not, like, I hope, you know, that things will end up well, but the universe does not guarantee that this thing will work. So one scenario might be that we just end up with a completely non-private money, but at least it's hard money. So we won one battle, and then maybe a hundred or a thousand years from now, somebody comes up with a with a new system that's also private. Or who knows, maybe governments will at some point respect privacy. I mean, radical things have happened in the past. Yeah, I think that's an important part of it. People are just in general, not just governments. I mean, governments work for their people. So I think in general, people are just going to have to become more comfortable with the fact that people should have privacy, including privacy in transactions, mm -hmm. uh, which is, uh, you know, an uphill battle. But that's probably part of the battle here. But uh, yeah, yeah, I think we've we've now spent 20 minutes speaking about this. Uh, at distance and I think w I, I would say this is actually the biggest problem that Bitcoin hasn't quite solved yet and would you agree with that? Yeah I would I think this is probably the biggest threat to Bitcoin Yeah. period and we're seeing concrete uh, you know it's a very very subtle small start of it but you know it's now officially a thing I guess I would say I guess it was a thing when OFAC published those two addresses and then it was another thing again when two pools, you know, from a marketing point of view said, hey, we're compliant. We like this. And now it's another thing because somebody put in an op return and otherwise probably did not do anything then to publish this op return. And then the next time, I mean, the problem with OFAC, of course, is the list is too small. So it doesn't, you can't really do anything. But you could probably, you know, censor a lot more transactions if you just use a basic filter with some of these chain analysis companies, and then a darknet might really, you might really be able to see it. And then the, if the pool brags about that, saying, hey, look at that. You know, we, we stopped thousands and thousands of darknet transactions. Look at how amazing a force for good we are. They, did, they wouldn't have stopped it, right? They would have just delayed them by one block. But then, you know, they can probably sell those coins at a profit. The Coinbase rewards. That's kind of the dynamic, I think. It, it is just a gradually increasing thing. Like, yeah, I, I also made the intransigent, intransigent minority argument earlier to you, but I don't know if we want to rehash that here. Yeah, don't you mean it's, the it's intolerance kind of, minority? Yeah, I think that there's two, there's two, um, two ways to do it. The intolerant minority, yeah. But my kind of working theory, and I could be wrong, and I know you don't agree with it, so that's good news, mm -hmm. is that 
when you have an intolerant minority that is like very strict about one specific thing, right, where the rest of the people don't care, and I think that minority here is the government, and you know indirectly the government. So, if you are a compliance person at a bank and you want to open a you know and and somebody comes to you and says hey i want to start a mining pool can i borrow some money from you then you might start say well we really want you to be compliant because i'm the compliance officer and that's really all i do and essentially you know you're a government person when you when you're a compliance person um then you can say well we're going to give you the loan but only if you join one of these censorship pools Otherwise, we're not going to give you the loan. So you could still get a loan, but it's going to be at a higher interest rate. So it might not be worth it for you. It might be better for you to just censor those transactions and get a lower interest rate. So, and then, you know, when you are violating any of these rules, like the OVAC law, and you are doing something that's not allowed, the government can throw you in jail. So they're very intransigent about that. They're, They're willing to use any level of violence, basically, to stop you from doing this. But on the flip side are hundreds of millions of potential investors who just want to buy coins and they're happily uploading passports. So so you have a very forceful, very, you know, uh, yeah, very forceful group of people like the government, like compliance officers who really want you to not have privacy. And then you have a lot of people who will just go along with that. Yeah, and it's very diffuse because it's every you know it's every bank out there. It's not just one big bank; it's every local bank branch. Yeah, you, know, you so, go to some small town and you want to open a, a business account. It's like, well, are you compliant? Yeah. yeah. So we had this discussion just before recording the podcast, indeed. And and I, I, I I'll give you that this is sort of an open question, maybe. But I think I think the intolerant minority thing really works, really works well, if the rest. Everyone else just doesn't really care. That's when the intolerant minority thing works. While I think in this case, there is at least going to be a minority that's going to be intolerant in the other direction. That's going to say, over my dead body, that any transactions are going to be censored. That's Yeah, I agree. There's th- probably if at least a few thousand people. We will, con- uh, we will consider that a 51% attack and we will take measures against that. It's actually interesting that you bring this up also because, you know, we've just uh, done a couple of episodes on uh, Taproot activation and the USF debate is relevant again. And the USF is in a way an intolerant minority as well. And the reason that I think it works in the USF context is because everyone wants Taproot. Everyone wants Taproot. There's no one against it. There's only debate basically on how to activate it. And I think when it comes to activation, I, th- I think, but I could be wrong, and I'm willing to hear why I would be wrong, but I think when it comes to the activation part itself, that's where the intolerant minority thing works. Because, you know, the people have different opinions, but will they really sort of, you know, reject the whole idea if they get taproot, or will they just be like, well, it wasn't our preference, but at least we get taproot, so it's fine. That's sort of what I. That, that's sort of why I think the intolerant minority would work in that case. Uh, right, and, but the intolerant minority in general, as a mechanism, does not may not require that. I, you just all you need for that in general is a very fanatic group of people that is spatially dispersed. I mean, that's at least what Taleb says. Like, you know, every neighborhood, every city, or every neighborhood is like 
one Jewish family, and so the entire world is drinking kosher food, mm. uh, drinking kosher drinks, not necessarily eating kosher food. Um, that's all you need. And it's not that the rest of the world has to be pro-kosher food. That's not at all the case. In Taproot, it is the case, right? Everybody says Taproot is great. But that part isn't necessary in general for this mechanism. And because of this geographic dispersion where in every place on the planet there is a compliance officer working on behalf of some government really insisting on you not having privacy, that's why I'm, I'm seeing the same dynamic as that. It's not, but it's very, it may be different from the UASF story. Well, there's another interesting thing uh, that's relevant, and we should dive in this deeper uh, another time, bit maybe. But I'm, I'm going to mention it briefly. It's this idea that 51% attacks and soft forks, in the way they work, are very similar, right? They're, they're sort of a, a yeah. A, so a soft fork is like a consensual 51% attack. What's that? Yes, exactly. A soft fork is yeah. Yeah, so and I think that's actually one of the arguments that some people have been making in the taproot debate is that what makes it consensual is that anyone who would want to opt out can opt out. And this requires that there is a signal on the blockchain which opponents can use to opt out. Well, 51% attack doesn't have this signal on the blockchain, so it doesn't really allow opponents to opt out of the upgrade, the upgrade in quote marks. So when it comes to a censorship pool like this, if, it, if they would get a majority, but they're never going to broadcast the signal on the blockchain, then they're not really leaving opponents of this change uh, a, a way to opt out cleanly. Uh, while if they would, and that's what makes it a 51% attack. Well, if they somehow would make a clear signal on the blockchain that there's going to be new rules, then that would allow you and me to say, no, no, we don't want these rules at all. We're going to use the signal to actually fork off to a different chain where there is no censorship. Uh, and and that, that would sort of made it, made it a soft fork because now we can opt out. This is something we need to revisit sometimes, George. Yeah, and your prediction market solution is not going to help you either because, you know, the prediction market itself would have compliance problems. Uh, no, it would actually work perfectly, ex especially in this case. Be it, it would work in the software case, but it wouldn't work in the 51% of that case. And that's exactly the, the difference that I'm going to explain to you in another episode in more detail. Yeah, <laughs> sounds good. All right. Um, so um, that was just one opportune message in a pool, which probably didn't censor anything. And, you know, here we are. Here we are. later. Sure. So um, I'm going back to the pool, I think. Yeah, I found in your pool. I will uh, keep enjoying Other, this cold a, weather here. A, a very different type of pool. I'm going to the swimming pool. Oh, that's terrible. I hate swimming pools. No, they're great. Is it the infinity pool? <laughs> oh, they've my got, favorite they've pool got a whole is ton like of a, pools here. Okay, my favorite pool is like an infinity pool they right have, next to the ocean. So you don't have to get your feet wet with the sand, but you do get to enjoy the view of the ocean. Those are perfect. No, they don't have that. They do have infinity pools, it looks like. All right. Well, everybody, thank you for listening to this somewhat strange episode of the Van Weirdem Shorts NATO. There you go.